guys, this is Kira Lerner. I am the writer and co-creator of About Skylar Falls, the web serial at skyfalls.com. This is the first ever ASF podcast, and I'm creating it to celebrate the fact that in November 2012, About Skylar Falls reached its 15th anniversary of its premiere on the web, and also finished the unbelievably long fourth season. Yay! quite a long time in coming for both of them, really. So uh, I thought, you know, I would do something different. And as a result, that's what this podcast is for, as I said. And I asked readers and everyone else um, over at the Epiguide and on my mailing list and Facebook and Twitter and so on to send in questions and comments regarding, well, just about anything, but mostly about Skylar Falls. Uh, and people responded very, very generously Actually, so generously that this is the second attempt of mine at creating this podcast. The first one, I answered all the questions at once, and it lasted three and a half to like four hours. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that that is a violation of the Geneva Convention, their rules against torture. Like, nobody should have to listen to me talking for that long. So, um, I figured I would split up this podcast into two or more podcasts, and I would do it uh, according to topic, because the questions tended to fall into one or two different categories. Like, the first one would be questions mainly about ASF and its plots and characters, and my plans for the future, and, you know, how it came about, inspiration and stuff. And then the other questions were mostly from writers, and they asked things about writer's block, which... I know quite a lot about, and um, just general writing tips and editorial stuff and that kind of thing, and, which is very flattering for people to ask, by the way, of me, um, as if I'm some kind of expert in general on writing, but, uh, you know, asking me if, you know, how to solve writer's block is kind of like asking, I don't know, Charlie Sheen how to not be crazy, but um, nevertheless, I'll do my best. So, and I figured that you know, my readers would be more interested in the ASF stuff, and people who are writers would be interested in the writing section. So this way, splitting it up, you can just listen to whichever podcast is more your speed. Although I will say that there's going to be some writing stuff in the ASF podcast today, and there's going to be some ASF talk in the writing section, because I will be going into a bit about uh, how I create characters and creating scenes and perspective and all that kind of stuff using About Skylar Falls as an example. So it might be of some interest to people who want to hear the behind the scenes kind of stuff like that. Anyway, so that's my explanation for why this is only one of several podcasts. To start with, first of all, actually, before I say anything, I should mention that if I use the pronoun we in this podcast, I am not trying to imply that there is a huge team behind About Skylar Falls because there totally isn't. At the moment, it is just me. But we almost always refers to my co-creator, Casey, and I. Now, Casey is not known to many of you because she was never really had an online presence. She was mostly just writing and planning and, you know, doing unimportant stuff like that. But I would be unbelievably remiss if I didn't give her all the credit in the world for being as integral to the creation of About Skylar Falls and the development of it and its first season and through much of its second season. We both wrote the first season in tandem uh, and much of the second season as well. Um, 
Actually, how we did this was we planned each episode's scenes. We knew exactly how many scenes and which scenes would be in each episode. And then we would just split them in half. Uh, she would take the first half and I would take the second. And next week we would reverse that. And neither of us had any characters that we insisted on writing for. We would write for all characters. And this way, uh, you know, we both got used to writing for Tristan or Vanessa or Johnny or any of the other first season characters. And I think that's what led it to be a pretty cohesive experience. Anyway, the point is that when people think of about Scott Falls, I would really hope that y- you remember that there were two of us who created the series and are responsible for, really for its um, success, such as it is. And uh, Casey left in about the middle of the second season because she had the nerve to get married and you know start a family and have a new job, so she was too busy to work on ASF, but. Nevertheless, uh, the stories that she and I planned together really continued until the third season, and honestly, tendrils are still sort of reaching out into the fourth and beyond, so her presence is still felt. I thought before we start, it might be fun to have a little time capsule of 1997. Um, To refresh your memory, Bill Clinton was president of the United States, of course, but we had not yet heard the name Monica Lewinsky. Happy times. Tony Blair was the Prime Minister of the UK. Princess Diana had just died, as did Mother Teresa. Over in Scotland, we learned that Dolly the Sheep had been cloned. And, um, of course, uh, Hong Kong had returned to Chinese rule, so that was a pretty major event. Um, That is, like, the big news of 1997. Some little trivia bits. Um, Netscape Navigator was the top browser in those days, and Internet Explorer, which was only up to version 4, only had like 29%. Some TV series that premiered that year were Ally McBeal, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and uh, South Park, which is really hard to believe that we share an anniversary date. Um, And the top songs were Tony Braxton, Unbreak My Heart, Candle in the Wind, of course, by Elton John. That was, you know, due to Princess Diana's death. And Wannabe by the Spice Girls. And for a bit of perspective, well, a whole heck of a lot of perspective, actually, the price of gas in the United States was $1.29 a gallon. Oh, yeah. Time has passed. So that was 1997, a very, very quick look. Um... I also did some research on About Skylar Falls in particular, and uh, I just thought there would be some fun to look at some trivia. For example, by the numbers, um, Season 1 began in November 1997. Uh, It ended in May 1998, ran for 22 episodes, and there were a total of 217,143 words. Season 2 began in September, or possibly August, of 1998. There wasn't much of a hiatus, really. And then it ran through June or July of 1999. Um, There were 37 episodes, so increase of 15 there, but only 192,293 words. So it's interesting that there were 15 more episodes, and yet 30,000 fewer words. 
I think the reason for that was because Casey had left and it was easier to write shorter episodes, uh, even if I ended up writing more of them. So now season three is where we start to run into a bit of a problem, and I'll get into that much more in detail when we talk about writer's block. But uh, it began in September 1999 and uh, ran through September 2001. So as you see, there was kind of a much longer run there. And there were 40 episodes, so three more than the previous year. And yet, um, there were 327,370 words. So three more episodes and more than 110,000 words extra. Uh, Then, of course, we come to season four, which began in November 2001, God help me, and ended in November 2012 with 63 episodes, and I'm going to pause for a moment here and just mention that I do a podcast with Michael, the creator of Footprints, over at the Epiguide. Um, it's called the Epicast, and we do it once every, like, six weeks or so, and uh, if you don't go over to the Epiguide, which is epiguide.com, you really should. It's um, a community devoted to web serials, and you'll find lots of good stuff to read there, and also, that's where the ASF forum is housed, so um, you should have already been there, darn it. But anyway, so we do this podcast, and in the last episode, Michael asked me about um, about Skylar Falls' anniversary, and he asked if I'd done any word count for the fourth season. And at that point, I had thought that I'd done a word count as of episode 57, and the total there was 450,000 words. Which is, you know, crazy enough, right? But as it turns out, when I was doing the research for this podcast, I looked it up and I realized that I had actually calculated that 450,000 number as of episode 53. So, no, I know there's only four episodes, but the last ten episodes of this season were ridiculously long. So the final season four word count is, are you ready for this? 562,900 words. Oh my god. (laughs) Well, what this means is that for people who are intrepid enough to read from episode 1 from season 1 through episode 63 of season 4, you have read a total of 1,299,716 words. So, bravo. To all of you guys, and I hope you all have a really good prescription for your glasses now. Um, again, you know what the funny thing is? I know it's an achievement for me and everything, but what bugs me is that it's 1,299,716, and that I couldn't get 284 extra words in there somewhere just so I could get to the 1.3 million mark. You know, I'm that anal retentive that it like bugs me that I was so close and I just couldn't get it there. Uh, anyway, I will say, however, that that is 200,000 words more than the entire Harry Potter series. Um, meanwhile, there are, uh, in other trivia, there are 110 characters who rate bios. Um, I have cast bios for those of you who don't follow Scott Falls regularly, and um, when you click on a character link, a little bio pops up. And um, 
actually, so there are 110 characters who rate bios. That doesn't mean that there are only 110 characters, of course, because not everybody is important enough or is will be mentioned frequently enough to really earn a biography. And it doesn't mean that there are only 110 bios altogether, because, again, if you don't know ASF, um, what I do is I create a whole bunch of different bios for each character. As people go through the seasons, the bios get more and more descriptive. Um, so someone reading episode one and clicking on the link by Tristan Campbell's name is only going to get a very basic um, amount of information, whereas someone clicking on Tristan's name in season three is going to get most of the plot beats uh, that he's been through, and God knows he's been through a lot. Um, <laughs> so this way, uh, people who read earlier episodes are not getting spoiled for stuff that happens later on. It does mean that I have to create a bunch of separate bios for all of these characters, and so someone, again, like Tristan, he has 11 separate bio files. Olivia and Jem are second with 10 bios each, and Rena and Greg, I believe, have 9 and 8, respectively. So, it's making me tired just thinking about it. But I think it's worth it, honestly. I think that's one of the most useful aspects of a Boscother Falls site. So, I'm glad to put in the work final little bit of ASF trivia is that if it took place in real time, characters like Jason and Julie and Becca and Simon, as of the first episode, would have only been like six months old. (laughs) But of course, that is not the case. And the characters who were on the canvas at the time, who were Jason and Julie, were only 13, which goes to show you how little time has passed in about Skylar Falls over four seasons um, and 15 years. So that is the trivia portion of this podcast, and it's kind of a bunch of scary trivia for me. But So now it's time for me to go over some of the questions and comments, um, which is, of course, the whole raison d'etre of this podcast. And... Um, As I said, I'm going to focus on the questions in this podcast relating specifically to storyline and and plans for the future and things like that. So the first question or comments that I'll read um, are from Dana, who is a very long-time reader. She started in 2002. She says she was pregnant with her first child at the time, which means that that child now is about 10 years old or almost. Wow. One of the comments that she makes is um she says some very nice things and thank you for that very much dana uh but she does say looking back on those first years it's hard to believe what outrageous plots they had um i mean vampires blood cults somehow i don't imagine you doing that anymore today uh unquote now this wasn't actually a question but it i think there's like an unasked question in there and um you know would i create a storyline similar to the Acetato di Sangue cult storyline that we did in our first season. Oh, and this is as good a time as any to mention that there are going to be some spoilers for plots and stuff. Um, So I'll try to keep them to a minimum, but it's not going to be easy. And I'll try and warn you in advance. But anyway, so this is a warning for the first season. Yeah, so would I do that storyline today involving blood cults and not vampires. I will remain fervent till my grave that these were not 
vampires. They were a total riff on the vampire myth. Uh, it was our take on, you know, what would, you know, what would it be like if there was a disease that was actually the cause or the inspiration for the myth of the vampire, uh, much as epilepsy was once considered possession by the devil, or, um, and this is a new theory, that uh, the Salem witch trials were actually results of the hysteria that resulted due to a fever um, that occurred due to some spore, erga, I think it's called, that had infected some wheat or barley or something like that, and um, some people had this fever and they were acting, you know, manic or whatever, and so they were considered witches. Um, anyway, so this was our take on how to make vampires real, you know, except they weren't really vampires, they were just people with this blood syndrome that had, several hundred years ago, been considered vampires. Anyway, I would say that no, I would not do that storyline today. And, but I'll tell you why. It has nothing to do with me being embarrassed about it, or that I think it was a bad storyline, or that um, it's something I look back on and cringe or anything like that, because it's so to the contrary. I actually am really proud of that storyline, and um, I'm going to mention it a little later. But I think it's the main reason is because it involved too many over-the-top things at, at once. That really was, I think, the reason why it perhaps seemed especially outré. Um, you know, today, in About Scholar Falls, we still have a lot of, shall we say, high-concept storylines. I mean, there are two mob families in these teeny-tiny little upstate New York towns fighting it out and causing, wreaking havoc all over the place. And then there's a woman with um, dissociative identity disorder, as or as many people used to call it, multiple personality disorder, which may or may not even be a real thing, according to um, many psychiatrists. There's a lot of controversy there. So, you know, there's a lot of over-the-top stuff in ASF, but they tend not to pile on themselves. Um, they're discrete stories, and they're treated with... Well, I can't say that they're all that subtle... Um, spoiler alert for the fourth season finale, everybody. If you haven't read it, go away. Listen, don't listen now. You know, how subtle is it to have a huge massacre in a church? It ain't that subtle. But ASF is just more... I think it's more introspective now. And the pace is certainly slower. That's putting it mildly. But it, it all comes from a place of realism and looking at the characters, and I, I don't think it's as plot-based as it used to be. That said, that doesn't mean that the um, Asidato di Sangue storyline is not going to be addressed in the future, and in fact, it still has a place in the story, because Johnny's mentioned Vanessa several times, and obviously Vanessa's still out there, and actually, Maxine, the detective, is doing some research into Dr. Greg White's history um, at the hospital, and one of the things that he is responsible for is finding a treatment for Olivia's blood syndrome. And Maxine has started to home in on that particular case, because she finds it a little odd that a neurologist was working on this blood syndrome, and you know exactly how the cure came about, and all that so it still has a part in 
the history, and I'm not planning on erasing it. So Dana goes on, you juggle a lot of characters, and sometimes it's just hard to follow. Um, it's hard to care about them all and to follow all the complex interactions at some point. This is why I think ASF could never be a novel. The tension and balance is always shifting from one plot to the other, unquote. Well, I really don't have a defense for that because I, I agree with Dana completely here. Um, I think that is a flaw in my writing. And I mean, as I said before, there are 110 freaking characters with bios. So this is evidence of a fairly unwieldy cast, shall we say. You know, part of it is, you know, just my inability to be as deft as I would like at juggling the storylines and, you know, making sure some characters are getting the main focus and the other ones perhaps are only background, you know. I mean, I know that's how most web serials and TV shows and soap operas and whatever work. I guess I I can't let go of my feeling or my desire to have About Skylar Falls be, well, about Skylar Falls, the community, and the idea that you as readers are walking through the community and like peeking in the windows of each of these warped little people and um <laughs> and seeing what goes on in there i do my best in each episode to have three or four different storylines yet making sure that at least two of these storylines are related so it's not just four discrete unconnected plots so that it's chop 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 you're just always changing focus throughout the episode, but there's some ebb and flow between the storylines. I mean, that's what I attempt. I'm not always successful about this, and I totally cop to that. The only defense I can really say, actually recently there were a couple scenes that people, well, they didn't really complain about it, but they just noticed that it seemed odd that these scenes were in certain episodes. For example, one of them involved Julie meeting Drew, who is Rena's brother, and um, they were after school and they were just talking about music and basically just getting to know each other. And a comment that I received was that nothing really happened in that scene, and so it seemed kind of random. Another similar comment occurred in actually the most recent episode, where, small spoiler alert for the season finale, Tristan and Cameron have a discussion about obtaining underhanded control of Omni, and Tristan also realizes that he can sort of obtain underhanded control of Beth in sort of a similar way. And that, too, seemed fairly random, considering it came among an episode that had much larger plot points, and we were certainly mostly focusing on the Lori wedding and the aftermath of Operation Mousetrap. The only defense I can say, and it's probably just didn't work out the way I wanted it to and like I said I just wasn't as deft as I'd like it to have been but the reason that some of these stories are sometimes included is because not that they're continuing storylines that already exist but and I did this particularly in the end of in the last 10 episodes of this season but they're kind of well they're hints of storylines in the future and I wanted to include them because not just to tease them for you guys, although, you know, that's very important to me, that you have some sense, maybe, of or hint of where things are going, but it's a kind of promise to myself. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to make sense, or if I'm really going to be able to articulate it very well, but I wanted to include these storylines that had nothing to do with cliffhangers or anything really super major, but because I just wanted to plant these seeds and know in my mind that 
they were going to grow and that I have a place to go next season other than just finishing out the existing cliffhangers. And for someone like me who's struggled with writer's block and feelings of insecurity about where I'm going and my writing, and this is all stuff that, again, I'm going to be going into in the next podcast, um, it was just very important for me to include them. And it's very, very possible that I just did it ham-handedly and that I put them in the wrong episodes or in the wrong order. And for that, I'm sorry. And um, I really wish I were a better writer. And I actually, I wish I had a writing staff so that, you know, ASF could be daily and therefore wouldn't be such a big deal for moving around characters. And I'd be able to move plots much more quickly and all that. But I don't. And ASF isn't a daily serial. And you know, like I say, is I will try to do better. And okay, big spoiler alert. Big spoiler alert for the season finale. So really, if you haven't read it now, and like, why haven't you? Hello? But um, if you haven't, walk away right now. Okay. The truth is, if it were up to me, I would have gotten a whole bunch of other Skylar Falls people into that church just so I could kill them all off. <laughs> um, there were not nearly enough characters in that, I mean, important characters in that church who could have been in peril and whom I could have ended, but that would have been a cop-out. I like having characters around, like Bert, even though I am literally the only person who cares if he lives or dies. But, um, I like these extra characters. They're there, they're for color, they live in the town, and I have to just live with it now, and I do hope to do a better job at balancing things around. So, that's the very long and, sorry, wordy answer to that comment. Now, she does actually have a question, but I'm going to save that toward the end of this podcast. So I haven't reached the end of your letter, Dana. Don't worry about that. I will get to it. Moving on to another question. This one is from Dallas, who is actually the author of another web serial called One Day at a Time. Actually, I don't think he reads about Skylar Falls, but um, he was kind enough to submit an an, uh, question anyway and wish us a happy birthday so thank you very very much for that Dallas he asks the very good question what have been the highs and lows for you over the last 15 years Uh, this could be anything from your creative process to storylines so okay well I'm gonna say the whole creative process thing again because that's writery stuff one of the biggest was the first the whole first season pretty much but mainly the murder mystery and the solution thereof uh relating to camilla o'brien and what fun we had planting those clues and the red herrings and making the whole mystery completely solvable by the readers if the readers were paying attention the first the biggest clue in a way was right in the third episode where there was a crucifix torn from Camilla's neck that was discovered. And it was actually used as a red herring, sort of, um, to throw people off the track and making um, Frank believe that it was due to Tristan's jealousy because the crucifix was bought as a gift from Frank to Camilla. But it had a whole different meaning, as we would soon learn much later in the season. But anyway, the whole development of that mystery and all of the clues fitting in so well, and it was a really self-contained mystery, which really has not been the case throughout any of the other seasons. And um, so that was a high point. So the next big highlight for me, actually possibly the biggest, involves the big con game that I pulled in the third season. Um, You know, here I have to make the decision 
Should I be my usual self-deprecating, insecure self, or do I let my egotistical freak flag fly? This is supposed to be the high, so I'm just going to be, well, full of hubris. Um, I pulled a twist in the third season that was pretty much the crying game of web serials, as far as I know. I don't know of any shock that was as, as successful as this. Um, obviously, my knowledge of the web serial world is not infinite, so there could be some huge, huge surprise somewhere else. Uh, but I follow a lot of serials, and nope, this one beat all. So, um, oh, that's obnoxious, I'm sorry. But it was borne out by the audience reaction to it. Okay, in the the least spoilerific description of this plot. A man was having an affair with a woman, and basically she was fooling him regarding her status the whole time. And while she was fooling him, I was fooling the audience as well. And yet, I was doing it in a way that the audience totally could have picked up on. Again, similar to the first season. And what made this whole thing tricky was I had to be unbelievably careful in how I wrote each scene between these two characters. I had not just their dialogue, but in the narrative itself, because I didn't want to mislead the audience in the narrative. The narrative had to be completely straightforward and honest. It was only the dialogue, really, and perhaps some of the implications of what people were doing... Uh, that was misleading the audience. So it just took an inordinate amount of planning, and when finally the twist came out in the last seconds of the third season finale, you could hear jaws dropping, you know, throughout the internet. Well, you know, the people who actually read about Skylar Falls at that point. But it was extremely successful, and it worked for the characters, and I was just so delighted that almost nobody, except with like one person, was able to guess the actual twist. And the funny thing was, I wrote it the way I did, because I wanted people to go back and read it a second time, and take a look at these scenes, and think, oh my god, I totally see it now. (laughs) um, It's kind of like Arrested Development, where I don't know if people have, you know, watched this wonderful, wonderful show, which you should. Um, but it's great when you watch it the first time, but it is so much better when you watch it the second, because the second time around, you realize all of the little clues that the writers put into each episode, you know, and the in-jokes that now make sense. Um, that's pretty much how I wrote that entire third season, this particular storyline. Not that I'm putting myself on a par with the Arrested Development people, but I'm just saying that's the idea behind it. Anyway, so that was really the highlight of the season, and really my, so far, the experience of writing about Skylar Falls. I just... It was the closest I've come to a tour de force, and okay, now I'm gonna shut up, because I'm hating myself, even as I say all this. Now, for the second season, the two stories that were highlights for me were the Tristan, Olivia, Philippa, Will fiasco, and the Nora White murder mystery. Now, the Will fiasco came about because, um, before the About Skylar Falls even began, Philippa married Roald Ortiz, um, her second husband, and she created a will that stated that if Roald predeceased her, her money would go to Tristan, her son. 
as it happened, Roald did apparently die, and she never changed her will because she expected her money would go to Tristan, and that really would have been what she would have done to change her will anyway, so she figured she could just leave it alone, because who wants to deal with their will? Nobody does. Well, in the first season, Philippa was killed, and then it turned out that Roald was actually alive, and then he died like a day after she did. Fast forward to the second season. It When it came time to read Philippa's will, uh, Tristan and Olivia, who was um, Tristan's stepsister, and the daughter of Roald Ortiz. They were in a meeting with Ronald Granger, who was Philippa's executor, and he had to reveal that due to the terms of Philippa's will, her money actually did go to Roald Ortiz because he was alive when she died, so her estate was indeed transferred to him. When he died, then his estate, including now Philippa's fortune, went to Olivia, his daughter, and the stepdaughter whom Philippa loathed. So, thus bypassing Tristan entirely. And this twist was just heartbreaking for Tristan. And, you know, that's really what I love doing, was breaking Tristan's heart. And, um, actually, it came about because of very good advice from a friend and colleague of mine at Carnegie Hall, um, Phil, who was the plan-giving director and an estate planner himself. And I went to him asking him, how can I get this woman's estate away from her son and to her stepdaughter. Does it require some kind of weird codicil? You know, I need some kind of mistake in the will to completely surprise everybody. And so we discussed it and Phil helped me come up with this. It was just fun to see how this was not anybody's grand master scheme. It was just pure bad financial planning on Philippa's part. She should have redone her will and she didn't and her son got screwed over. So that's uh, the first part. Now the Nora mystery story what I enjoyed about this was, first of all, the audience knew that she was a killer, because in the first season, Nora, they'd seen Nora kill Philippa, again, Tristan's mother. Philippa was having an affair with Nora's husband, Doug. That's why she killed her best friend, Philippa. And Nora also was revealed to have killed a couple of Doug's other mistresses several years earlier. Again, in the second season, the audience knew all this, and it, so it wasn't a matter of who done it. It was a matter of what's she going to do now, and is she going to get caught? And the whole time, Nora was slowly falling apart because she really did feel guilty for killing her best friend, and um, she saw how it was affecting Tristan, her best friend's son, and more importantly, she saw how it was affecting her own family. Although she didn't quite realize why it was affecting it, but the truth was that her daughter, Daphne, a teenager, uh, had discovered some evidence, pictures of Doug's mistresses and obituaries and all that, and Daphne immediately leapt to the conclusion that her father was the killer. And so Daphne started this little investigation, and she grew more and more afraid of her father um, and hated him even more, and Nora didn't understand this, and she hated this, and she was afraid for her daughter, and um, finally the season ended with Daphne accusing Doug of being a killer, and Nora overheard this, was horrified, and she realized that she had no choice but to give herself up. So the glue of this family being Nora, who, despite being, you know, a nutcase, and um, was actually a loving mother and wife, and she was the one who kept this family together, and Doug and Daphne just had an utterly fractured relationship, and this set the stage for 
their family breaking apart, which was exactly what Nora had killed to prevent. I mean, in her mind, she killed these mistresses to keep her family together. I just loved that, first of all, the audience knew all of this all along, so there was this suspense in watching a murderer um, deal with her crimes, and also that it was actually a rather close family story rather than a grandiose investigation and, you know, criminal murder mystery the way that the first season had run. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, I'm very pleased with that storyline. Okay, now, I already did the third season, so the fourth season. Well, the fourth season was full of, like, tons of lows, and um, you, most of you know about all of those, just lots of breaks and hiatuses and unfulfilled promises and all that stuff, but... There were some highs. I will accept that. There were beats that were uh, finally gotten to that I've just been dying to get to for years and years, such as Rena finally revealing her virginity, uh, the whole Operation Mousetrap. Oh my God, I I can't believe it's over. <laughs> you know, it's just, um, and I can't believe it came off as uh, fairly smoothly as it did. And I don't mean that it came off smoothly for Johnny, because we know it actually didn't. But the whole way this intricate plan came together and then it, the leading into the season finale and all of that um, blowing up in everybody's faces. Then, uh, you know, the return of various family members to the um, to the fold and I'm trying to have some... There are some spoiler moments here, what can I say? I'm really very proud of the development of Beth. Over the fourth season, I'm just very pleased that she's finally gotten to be an actually rootable character. Um, For a while, just everybody hated her. And I think the fourth season has seen this start to turn around, and I'm uh, glad about that, because she's done a lot of hard work in her therapy sessions, and that means a lot to me. So, speaking of which, I'm really happy with the short story, I'll Be There, which looks into Beth's childhood and her relationship with her grandmother, Molly, who eventually sort of morphs into one of Beth's alters. Um, it was it was a painful and sort of delicate story about the degeneration of this girl into utter loneliness and, and um, mental illness, obviously. So I'm, I'm very pleased. I think it was some of my best writing in the season. Actually, as victimized as Martina has been, I'm really glad that she showed a lot of strength despite all that. I mean, God, what happened to her this year? She went from being mugged to uh, getting engaged to having her house broken into to then discovering that she'd been taped having sex with Alex to then getting knocked out and drugged and raped again and finding out that um, a DVD existed of this and it appears that, that it was consensual due to the drugs but it's just been a mess. Nevertheless, she has persevered. She's remained, I think, Um, a strong character because she continues to fight for her clients even though it's extremely difficult. She's a loyal friend and she stood up to Alex on the yacht so um, I was pleased with that. I loved the whole Play City plot um, especially Jem's role in it and um, his scam obviously and I'll discuss that actually in the next podcast. Oh, this, this slow change of Charles from a fairly cold father to a much more concerned and loving man who's extraordinarily worried about his daughter, Chelsea. That is an extremely meaningful storyline to me. The, the biggest high of all was 
coming off of a lot of um, all of these hiatuses and being able, really, as of August of this year, to produce continual episodes. So, uh, just the accomplishment of finishing the fourth season is the biggest high. But, with every high, there has to be a low, and now it's time to look at the icky stuff. Okay, and I'll try and make this much faster than I have. Firstly, Coming up with the plot involving the production of the Agatha Christie play Ten Little Indians and not being able to make it happen because there were just too many other pans in the oven. That's a big disappointment for me. I've always loved theater mysteries. I love the theater. I used to be a performer. Um, and the idea of having a murder mystery that echoed the actual play that, that was being put on so that the actors were being killed off one by one or something like that. I really wanted to make that happen, but I couldn't. There were other storylines that were much bigger and that had much more potential. So instead, it became a background story, and or not even a background story, but a hobby that the other characters mention. You know, it's still, it's still around there. Clark's still in the play, and so is Ross, and Lynn is involved. And, well, we're going to have to wait and see on Ryan, since Ryan was at the church... Um, a lot of people have forgotten that he was there, but he was up at the altar too, uh, so in that last episode of season four. So whether he's going to be available, shall we say, to direct the play is up in the air. Ahem. Um, again, being too overloaded with material to give enough focus to the David Riley murder mystery and the necklace storyline, and having to push them off to the fifth season, uh, that's very irksome. <laughs> Um, okay, this is more of a general thing, but I think I've been unsuccessful in writing romances, which is really embarrassing, considering I'm a romance novelist. <laughs> but I just, for whatever reason, I'm not really good with couples on About Sky Falls. Or at least that was particularly true earlier on. You know, I think I've gotten better, but the main established couples that have existed for a relatively long time are Mike and Martina and Frank and Olivia, and I don't think either of them have really caught on with the audience. I think they're good for each other, but I just don't think I've been able to make them interesting enough for you guys. As I said, I do see some improvement in in the couples that I've started to establish in the third and fourth season, um, such as Ian and Daphne, and well, now Johnny and Lori, just like, I really came out of left field as far as how much the readers have taken to them. I'm really, really delighted with that. I thought that you guys would see them as um, totally convoluted, but no, it appears not. People seem to be remarkably invested in that, so that's kind of a high. I'm sorry, I don't mean to intrude the high into the low here, but anyway, um, I think there's the Gregorina Gem Chelsea relationships. This is kind of a low for me, not the way it's developed, because it's developed exactly how I intended it and how I still intended. But the low has been that the audience is not following along with me. <laughs> I think I accidentally put too much emphasis on one half of this quadrangle and not enough on the other half or on the various other pairings. And by the half who became popular were Gem and Chelsea. And now I'm getting a lot of disappointment that Gem and Chelsea are not together. And, you know, I'm not saying who's endgame or who isn't, but I wanted everyone to be viable with everybody else. 
so that we can finally have that Greg Jim romance scene that we've all been looking forward to. Uh, <laughs> no, but um, I guess th- my disappointment there is a low. You know, I really wish that I had been more successful in bringing the audience along with me. Um, I just think I've failed to make it clear where I'm heading with this quadrangle, and my only hope is that I will do a better job at it. Another big failure, romantically-wise and plot-wise, is the Clark and Ross romance, such as it was, that they were totally intended to get together, like, in the first season or the second season, and I just could not make it happen, because Ross's personality just, I didn't get it, you know? And that's really embarrassing to say about one's own character, but I just love Clark a lot, and in a way, I didn't want to give him partner who was underdeveloped or would be embarrassed about being with Clark or I think actually I'm I'm pretty happy now with where it is now but that was a big disappointment to me not making that happen and having Clark not having any romance really in his life for the last well 15 years but okay it's actually only two years in ASF time but because I said he's a very important character to me Uh, very dear to me for reasons that I will get into later. But I think Clark fans will be happy next season. We'll put it that way. Okay, now the big one is Tristan Peter Campbell. I have done this guy so wrong um, that I'm just utterly ashamed. I can't look him in the face. (laughs) Uh, He's like the most important character of the first two seasons, beyond a doubt. You know, maybe the first season he was tied with Frank, but I also gave him, you know, this twisted love affair in the third season and he seemed to be primed for great stuff in season four and then I just dropped the ball you know, he was backburnered he had some really good moments with Beth earlier on in the fourth season back when knighthood was in flower but I just couldn't move him forward and I know why it happened I'll put it this way I pretty much know why all of these failures happened it's not like they just happened in a vacuum and I can't figure it out the reason this happened was because I needed to get Beth in a certain position in her life. I needed her to be in a relatively upwardly mobile position. She needed to be in a place where her life was slowly, steadily improving. So I had to rehabilitate her in the fourth, and she took up all of my time, and Tristan just could not get the attention that he deserved and he really he's on a downward spiral whereas she's slowly but surely on an upward spiral he needed to wait until she was ready before he could strike out at her so she got all the attention and Tristan bless his unlucky little heart um he just couldn't play a part in that except for as I said earlier making her life kind of a miserable hell while he seemed to stalk her so I just feel like I let down my star quarterback by turning him into the water boy. I'm hoping to turn that around, and that hint of a storyline in that last season episode um, is the start of that. But they're both two still separate people, and they just they can't come together until certain things happen with Beth and with Tristan. And I really would have wanted that to happen already, but it didn't. And that's, again, bad planning and bad writing, and I apologize to everyone in the known planet for that, but especially to Tristan. I know he doesn't really exist, but he's an important character to me too, as well. Those were the lows. Thank you very much, Dylas, for letting me end on that note. Gosh, this is a very long 
podcast, so I apologize for that. I'm going to have to cut this in half um, again, because I really don't want you guys to just hate the sound of my voice completely, and I will answer more questions very soon. But I'm going to end this podcast with the question that I referred to from Dana earlier, even though it's not strictly a storyline, but I think it just makes a good ending. She asks, what kept ASF going for 15 years? I'm not a writer in any way, so I can't put myself in your shoes at all. I would expect that financially you don't gain much, if at all, from the website. Um, So is it just a story who needed to be told? Is this like an artist who wants to finish her canvas, even if she doesn't know if anyone will ever look at it, just because she needs to express someone something inside her? Is it like training for, quote, real life, unquote, writing jobs? I know your audience is very important to you, but I just can't imagine that... You- I can't believe that you would go through all this trouble of the creative process just for this. So, okay, well, thank you for the question, um, which is a great one. What's kept me going? Well, to answer your questions or your theories in order, Dana, well, financially, do I gain much from this? If by gaining much you mean, like, in negative dollars, then I've gained a ton. (laughs) Um, No, this is a money hole for me. Um, I've been paying for the hosting since 1997, and uh, for the royalty-free license photos and for the music... And obviously for the time and effort, you know, but who cares about that? But, um, so yeah, it's got to be over a thousand, a couple thousand dollars by now um, in total. And I don't make a dime off of it. Of course not. Um, There's no ads on the website. And uh, there is a donation button, but it's really, really well hidden. And I must say that there have been no intrepid explorers who managed to find it (laughs) in the last 15 years, and that is fine. I really don't expect other people to finance my efforts of love or whatever the heck this is, but um, that said, if you do want to donate, sure, go right ahead. (laughs) So let's see what else. Uh, Is it a story that just needs to be told, you know, where an artist wants to finish the canvas, even if she doesn't know if anyone will ever look at it, because I need to express something? Well, there are stories that I definitely really, really want to tell. But it's not an artist thing. It's not an artist who'll finish her canvas even if no one will look at it. Because, and this is the total wrong answer to give. It is the unpopular answer. It is something that's going to make me sound horrible. But I don't write for myself. I write for an audience. I write to be read. So, Bath Scholar Falls would not still be around for 15 years if people weren't reading it. And I wouldn't be telling these stories if people weren't reading it. And it doesn't mean that they don't mean a great deal to me. And that it doesn't mean that I'm not dying to get the stories out, as I said. But the reason I want them out there is so that you guys can read them. As I said, this is an unpopular answer because nobody wants to hear that writers don't write for themselves. I mean, because that's the answer that every writer usually tries to give. Oh, I write for myself. The story just has to be told. You know, I would write even if no one were reading it. I, I hear that all the time at the Epiguide and throughout Twitter and on other web serial places and writing forums and all that. And yeah, Good for you if that's the case. That's awesome. I admire you in some esoteric way. But... I am so not going to be apologizing for writing for an audience because it just, 
You know, nobody ever asks that question of, like, a screenwriter or a playwright. They write their materials so that it's going to be acted out and performed and then seen by an audience. A dancer. They dance, they practice their hearts out, and the end goal is to perform on a stage, either in a ballet or a musical theater or whatever, in front of an audience. So why is it so... Why is it only novelists or fiction authors who get stoned for actually admitting that they want to be read? You know, suddenly they're just hacks. No, they have to only write for themselves. Otherwise, your work is going to be crap. You're just going to be Dan Brown. Sorry, but that's a big frustration for me. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, if I'm a hack, I'm a hack. I think my work speaks for itself. I think I... Actually, to answer her other question, is it like training for real-life writing jobs? I think this is real-life writing jobs. And I know, Dana, believe me, I know you did not intend to imply otherwise. I just want to interrupt and say that if you hear meowing, that is my cat, Thurblig, who is going through his usual... Every evening, he starts meowing for no reason whatsoever and running across the room. So, I apologize. Yes, that's him. That's Thurblig. Anyway, um, okay, sorry, cat distraction. Um, No, so I do consider this a real-life right. Okay, it's not a job, because, again, no money has exchanged hands. Although, indirectly, I have earned some money through um, other people reading about Skylar Falls and then giving me jobs. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's how I became a published author, was by... um, Well, first I was recommended to this publisher by um, my friend Aaron, who was the writer of Autumn Lake. Um, but the publisher then came and read about Skylar Falls and saw I could put a couple of words together, and he offered me the ability to write my first romance novel, and then that eventually led to a very long position working as um, an editor and web designer and a whole bunch of other stuff for this publisher. And he was always nagging me for writing another novel, and I just couldn't commit to it. And finally, I sort of had no choice um, in 2006. And so I wrote these novels, and I'm extremely proud of them, uh, particularly the last two. My best writing has been for About Skylar Falls, despite these novels that I've written. About Skylar Falls has let me explore some pretty dark things that are lurking in my brain, but also has really let me get into the minds of certain characters and create dense plots and unfortunately the novels that I've written had certain restrictions on them and word count restrictions as well and so I really couldn't explore as much detail as I would really like so ASF is where I get to write my best and sometimes most warped um, material so that's another reason it's kept going actual answer to this question aside from what I just said was the one thing that Dana kind of brushed aside which was I know your audience is very important to you but I can't imagine that you'd go through all this trouble of the creative process just for that actually that's the one Dana <laughs> it is for the audience um, and like I'm not saying that in a selfless kind of way you know I again call me a hackety hack hack but I, as I said, I write to be read, and I get so much pleasure, so much pleasure out of the interaction I have with e-readers, and knowing that my work is being read by others, and that hopefully 
ideally. I'm making people feel something, and, you know, whether it's anger or sadness or happiness or amusement, okay, uh, it's just the idea that, you know, I'm affecting people is... Well, it's like validation for who I am and what I'm doing. And I miss that from when I was a performer. You would get that applause and instantly you knew, wow, I did something right. When as a writer, the fact that I'm putting my work out on the web and I'm able to have this connection with the readers, I hope, means the world to me. And it's such a thrill. So that's why, that's what's kept me going is because it is a true joy to be able to do it and an honor that people have stuck with me despite the horrible hiatuses and you know the slow episode production and what I'm sure seems like some weird plot choices or disappointing love triangles or whatever that the fact that you guys have stuck with me is it's humbling it's humbling that people care about the words that I type on my screen and um it is a privilege to have this opportunity to write and have my words unfiltered go out to you guys and especially, especially for you folks to respond to it and however you feel comfortable doing. Those moments when someone writes in the form or gives the feedback or whatever, uh, that's what makes it all worth it. So on that note, I am finally going to end this podcast. And I'm sorry if it was boring and rambly, and you know now why, first of all, why About Skylar Falls has 1.3 million words in it, and um, because I talk as much as I write, uh, but unfortunately not as articulately, so I apologize. Oh, before I go, I should mention that the music that you heard at the introduction of this episode, and that's going to be playing us out, um, is the ASF theme music which is called Hell's Bells, which was composed by Dennis M. Reed, used with permission. And that was originally uh, the theme for ASF starting in 2001. We're actually going to have a new theme for Season 5. I'm still going to use this old theme for the podcast until the very last one. So, that's all for tonight. Thank you very much for listening. If I didn't answer your questions yet, I will get to them in the next podcast, I promise. Or the one after that. (laughs) Um, Have a wonderful holiday. Thank you very much to Dallas and Dana and all the other people who I've mentioned who have asked questions so far. And I will hopefully see you around the ASF forum or our mailing list. Take care. Bye-bye.